0: in Matthew 26 36 to 56 and if you remember 2 weeks ago uh, I did we weren't uh, I was I didn't teach last week but the week before we just began or just began Jesus when his prayer in the garden and really this magnificent prayer of Jesus Christ and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read the first uh, 10 verses of 36 to 46 or 11 verses and this is his prayer in the garden. And we won't rehash the first couple of verses that we went through. But I'd like to finish this up here. In verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying oh my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as i will but as you will then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to peter what could you not watch with me one hour watch and pray lest you enter into temptation the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak again a second time he went away and prayed saying oh my father If this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed for a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. So again, We have here in Gethsemane, they arrive at this garden, and and the word Gethsemane really means oil press. So we get the context of where this is. It's probably in an olive grove and probably a pretty beautiful and pristine place. And Jesus arrives here with his 11 disciples. At this time, Judas is already gone. So they arrive at this garden, and 11 disciples are there with Christ. And what does Christ do is eight of the disciples are left, probably at the gate of the garden... And then Jesus takes Peter, James, and John further into the garden to where Jesus is then going to walk further on from them and begin his series of three prayers, as we'll see here in a minute. Christ goes on further as we, uh, we finished off in verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So Christ gives the commandment, Probably to all of his disciples, to the eleven or to the eight disciples still at the gate, then further on to Peter, James, and John, Christ wants them to pray with him, to stay in a spirit of of alarm and, and, and stay awake and prepare for the travail that is shortly going to be coming upon them. And Jesus isn't even saying this for his own sake, but he's also saying this for the sake of the disciples. If you remember just a few verses prior to this, Jesus predicts not only the denial of Peter, but the denial of the, 11, uh, the uh, ten other disciples, as we'll see here in verse 56. So Jesus is, I think, giving them the command to also pray so they fall not into temptation themselves. And then let's again just pick it up in verse 38. Christ understood what the time was. Perhaps uh, Christ brought these three disciples with him so he wasn't there alone. I think there is something with companionship. You know, being alone with yourself is good at times. But when you're in difficulty and trial in your life, having other people around you is a very great benefit. And our Lord being truly man, you know, he can sympathize and feels with all of our weaknesses. So I think having the companionship of these three disciples with him as he's praying in this time was very beneficial. So then again, we see verse 39 Then he went a little farther and fell on, his fra- uh, fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, I think here in verse 39, here we see the humanity of Christ, along with the deity of Christ. Truly God, truly man. His humanity is suffering in agony, but at the same time, he is wanting to complete And fulfill whatever his father wills. We see this prayer. Christ makes a supplication that this cup. We'll look at what the term cup here means in a a minute. But let this cup pass from me. But notice these words. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Christ, praying that this cup would pass from him. But in his God, uh, truly God, truly man. He is praying that the Father's will be done. You see this almost complete union with the Godhead. Not my will, but your will be done. And then we come here um, in this chapter. There is kind of a an interesting debate, and this is kind of beyond me at this point, but really the wills of Christ. And some of you may be familiar with kind of the debate is... Was there competing wills that Jesus had, the will of man and the will of God? And I won't really go any further because, like I said, it's, um, it's over my head to be able to completely explain. But if you want to do further research on it, I would encourage you to because it is kind of interesting. You have the will of man of Jesus Christ saying, this, let this cup pass from me, almost like he wants this cup to pass from him. But then the will of God bringing all things to pass and fulfilling scripture so, like I said, I can't, uh, I won't go any further. But it's definitely an interesting study on the wills of Christ, whether he had one will or two wills, you know, at this time in uh, in his um, ministry here on Earth. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Two wells or not, mm-hmm. not just... Yeah. Well, I think going along with your point is we see, you know, Christ. Uh, we'll see here in a minute. In Luke, it says he was sweating great drops of blood. Now, going thinking through it this week, is yes, we understand that Christ understands what's going to happen here momentarily he's going to face the wrath of a holy God. But I just, had a, I just had a thought here, and again, this is just my thought. I can't help but think here that Christ also had a concern for his earthly death also. And the reason I say that is Christ understood that he was going to face the wrath of a holy God. But we are told time and again in the Bible that he understands our sufferings. Uh, Hebrews 4.15, you don't have to turn, there. I'll only be there for, for a brief minute, but Hebrews 4.15, the author of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So again, I, I won't say completely one way or another, but I, I can't help but if Christ is truly man, he also had to be thinking about his death on the cross yes facing the wrath of a holy god but if he is at all points tempted as we are yet without sin he can he can sympathize with our weakness didn't he also have thoughts of the suffering and the pain physically and mentally that he was going to endure on the cross just something to keep in mind again i don't want to take it too far but yes christ here is primarily talking about suffering under the wrath of a holy god but if he's truly man which we believe i also think he had thoughts of of the the difficulty that he was going to face over the next couple hours on the cross again just just food for thought yeah Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we can we can't understand the way he felt but I do think it wasn't he, I, I do think he wasn't just completely neglecting the physical punishment that was going to come over the next couple of days. If he was truly a man again I, I think he had to know the physical punishment that was coming and that, that had to be concerning to him. But again just food for thought, and something to think about uh, in your own self-study. And notice here, too, is in verse 39, the beginning of this first of of three prayers. We're not given the whole structure of the prayer, and it appears it was over a couple hours' time period. But I just want to notice here the brevity of the prayer in Christ in this difficult time of his travail and distress. What does he pray? He just prays these simple words to let this cup pass from me. But he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I think that really illustrates the trust and the faith and the union of the Godhead, the brevity of this prayer that Christ has. And I think we can take into account here too, you know, Romans 8.26, where the Apostle Paul tells us that sometimes, a lot of times we have no idea what to pray, but that the Spirit is praying for us and with us. And I think looking at Christ here is that there, there's a lot of times in our lives where we struggle. What to pray for. But it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be complex. Just a simple prayer. Lord, if it's your will, let this difficulty pass from you. Or this or that. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And I think we can take that from our Lord here as a great example of what we can do. Uh, Mark fourteen thirty six. Mark says in his gospel. He says in verse 36. Jesus beginning the prayer. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Again, I think what's remarkable about this verse 36 is the word Abba, Father. And what does the Apostle Paul tell us in Romans and in Galatians? How can we address God the Father? The Holy Spirit gives us that desire to cry out, Abba, Father. Isn't that remarkable to think about? The God-man Jesus Christ addressed God the Father as Abba Father. And we have the privilege to address the Father the same way that Jesus Christ did. Absolutely astounding to think about. And also here we have Christ in verse 40. After he is done praying. This first time he comes back. And in verse 40 it says, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. So as I think this prayer was longer. You know, he may have been out there for 45 minutes to an hour, but the the uh, writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they just give us kind of a summarized version, just a structure of the prayer. But nonetheless, he finds probably not only the three disciples, but the other eight disciples sleeping at their current place. Jesus Christ is praying in Matthew, or uh, uh, Peter, James, and John are sitting there sleeping. So Christ comes to them and, and says to Peter specifically, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? So Christ here rebukes the disciples. The disciples at this point were probably exhausted. This is late in the night. I think this also illustrates their confusion and misunderstanding regarding the situation. If they really knew the abyss ahead, surely they'd be in prayer. And then here, I think this is a rebuke of Peter specifically. Christ points out specifically to Peter who, if you remember just a couple of verses, previously said he would not forsake Christ. Yet here he is at this hour of difficulty. He's sleeping. Inferred in this rebuke is Peter just saying he wouldn't fall under Satan. If the rest of the disciples would fall, surely Peter... Him saying himself would not fall. Yet Peter can't even stand against the forces of, na- uh, of nature. Yes, Becky. I think it just illustrates, again, the disciples. They're revered men, but they were just men. Same position as we are. If we were in the garden, I can guarantee you that I'd be flat on my face falling asleep also. But interesting here, when Christ rebukes Peter in verse 41, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, the apostles, The Apostle Peter is talking to the fellow believers at this time. And he uses a very similar word. And in verse 8 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter, he says, Be sober spirit and be on alert. This word alert here in in 1 Peter 5, 8 is a very similar word to what Christ says of Peter, watch and pray. This is not only just like a watching, but being alert, being awake, knowing your surroundings... So it may have been when when Peter was dictating this or writing this portion of his epistle that maybe he reminiscent about what Christ was saying to him. Peter, the days are perilous. Watch and be on alert. And the Apostle Peter takes that lesson and gives it to the people who are reading his letter when he's saying, be on alert. And listen here what he says the rest of verse 8 and 9. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Again, Christ is saying to his disciples, be on alert. Watch, for the days are perilous. And then in 1 Corinthians uh, 16, 13, the apostle Paul says very similar. Be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Again, Jesus is addressing his disciples here. Be on alert, watch, because the days and the times and the hours that we are approaching are perilous. And then finishing out verse 41, Christ says, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples were willing to go to death for Christ, as Peter had just said previously, but their sinful flesh wanted to depart and be with Christ. Their, flesh was, or their, their spirit was strong. Peter had good intentions, I believe, when he said, I wouldn't forsake you. I wouldn't deny you, but Peter was trusting in his flesh. He wasn't trusting in the Holy Spirit to give him wisdom through this hour of need. And then verse 42 and 43 are very uh, similar verses. We have here, again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Christ again goes away and comes back to find the disciples' eyes were heavy, showing their true and complete humanity. This is just, again, a perfect illustration, the disciples, of their complete humanity. Sinful men in an hour of need, falling asleep. And I think it really goes to demonstrate also, uh, reading the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, it's an interesting book where it's the older devil giving the younger devil devilish ideas. And most of the time, you know, Satan doesn't completely bombard us and destroy us, but it's small temptations and little things that lead us away from Christ or that lead us away from truth. And I think here is a perfect example of this in this time period that Satan is obviously in their midst working. And what does he do? Is he, he doesn't get them to like completely forsake Christ at this time. He just gets them to fall asleep so they're not awake, so they're not paying attention. I think that's a great illustration for us and a great example for us. We always have to be awake because Satan uses the slightest problems in our lives to lead us away from Christ. So again, continuing on to verse 42 and 43. I'm sorry, that's where we already are. And again, I want to just look here for a second. As Christ said this word cup here a couple times, let this cup pass from me. The theological term... Let me read what uh, Jerry Bridges said. Uh, He wrote an interesting little article for Ligonier, and I thought he'd just explain what this word cup here means of Christ wanting this cup to pass away. Because I'm sure most of you are familiar in the Old and New Testament, cup often symbolizes wrath, the wrath of God. So listen to what Jerry Bridges says. The theological term for Jesus' acting of drinking the cup is propitiation. The word propitiation, he'll explain it here in a second. A modern dictionary will say that propitiation means to appease or to placate. I find these definitions unsatisfactory when applied to Christ because they suggest a soothing or softening the wrath of an offended deity. Jesus did not soothe the wrath of God. He endured it. He did not suppress or extinguish it as we would extinguish a fire. Rather, he absorbed it in his own soul, the full, unmitigated fury of God's wrath against sin. To continue with the metaphor, he drank the cup of God's wrath to its last bitter drop. So for us who believe, the cup of God's wrath is empty. That's what this word cup here signifies. When Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, this wasn't just some insignificant cup. This cup represented the full, unmitigated fury of a holy God Upon sinners. That's what Jesus Christ is praying here. Let this cup pass from me. This is this is this isn't just an appeasement. As he says, I really appreciate about the word propitiation. Sometimes we just think of it as an appeasement. The word propitiation is a complete substitute. Jesus Christ not only gave his life, but he absorbed the wrath of a holy God forever and ever. It's the wrath that is was supposed to be against us for all of eternity. eternity. Jesus Christ, taking this cup, took in and drank the very last drop of the wrath of a holy God. And Matthew Henry sums up this with just this brief sentence When you next dwell in your imagination upon the delights of some favored sin, think of its effects as you behold them here. See its fearful effects in the Garden of Gethsemane, and desire, by the help of God, deeply to hate and forsake that enemy, to ransom sinners from whom the redeemed prayed, agonized, and bled. Next time you're tempted to sin, which every one of us, even today, will be tempted to sin, remember what that sin represents. It was at this point in the garden where Jesus Christ was saying, let this cup pass from me. Your sin that you commit was in this cup. The wrath of God, that sin, was poured out upon Christ for our behalf. So let us remind ourselves as we go here go from here today the next time you're tempted to sin it put Christ on the cross it put him in this position and i think that gives us a a great uh thing to think about yeah just understanding the infinite God and infinite wrath. We can't put our mind around infinite, but that's what Christ took on the cross, the infinite wrath of a holy God for all of eternity, for the sins of his people. And then verse 44, so he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. So Matthew doesn't rehash what he said. He prayed a third time in compelling and stressful situations. What did our Lord do? He prayed, prayed and prayed, prayed three times, asking not his will, but the Father's will. And I think this signifies the complete union of the Godhead, Christ being truly God, truly man. And uh, Luke makes an interesting observation that none of the other gospel writers and John make mention of. But in Luke 22, 43 and 44, in Christ's travail when he's in the garden, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, He was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And an angel from heaven, because of Christ's difficulty, came down from heaven and ministered to him during this time of need. And what's in, uh, MacArthur, I think, made the observation in his commentaries that really this angel signifying, it's almost like a condescension. You have here God, Jesus Christ in the flesh, but an angel has to come down and comfort him. This horror of what he is going to endure, the wrath of God, is such that even an angel has to come down and comfort Christ in his hour of need. And I think that illustrates really the difficulty and and the the, the sorrow in Christ's soul that he's going through here. Now, just again real quick, rehashing what Christ prayed, how does Christ pray? I think there's a couple things we can take here and apply to our own lives. From what's recorded. So, what are the couple things we can take from from Christ's prayer? The first is, he was in solitude. So he did have the disciples around him, but he went off further and prayed. So when we pray, we can pray corporately, but our prayer should also be in solitude. Just us, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, and Jesus Christ. Again, here, is the prayers were probably longer than what's written down here in the text but what we're given is that the prayers were short and precise. Jesus Christ says in Matthew 6, 7. He's saying here, verse 7, right before the model prayer. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Again, Jesus or God doesn't hear us because of our many words. He hears us out of our sincere desire and petitions and pleas for help. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have long prayers. I'm not saying that at all. But thinking that just repeating what you're saying is going to get you favor with God is not what you do. And then he asked for his petitions from the Father. So asking in the in the name of the Father. And then lastly, he finished his prayers by asking that not his will, but the Father's will be done. So whenever we pray, I encourage you, I think, a great strategy the when you end your prayer is saying, not my will, but your will be done. That's what Jesus Christ did here in the garden. And continuing on, verse 45, then he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. So Christ again comes to them a third time, and the third time they appear to be resting and sleeping. And he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. So if you remember... We've been going on for a couple weeks to this chapter 26, so I'll forgive you if you don't remember. But again, we see at the start of the Old Testament, all the way back, the prophecy of Christ As you have this giant funnel starting in Genesis. And then as you continue down the timeline, it gets smaller and smaller, more concise. And then Jesus is born. Then he begins his ministry, his three-year ministry. And then we see in verse or we see also in verse 18 of uh, chapter 26, Where Jesus says, my time is at hand. So it's getting nearer and nearer. And then what does he say here in verse 45? The hour is at hand. The hour is at hand. Betrayed into the hands of sinners, the Pharisees, scribes, Jews, and Romans. So we again, I think, can remind ourselves, as we've said time and again in this chapter 26, the complete sovereignty of God, bringing all of these events to pass until finally Christ says, at his command, the hour is at hand. The hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Again, those sinners, as we'll see here shortly, are the Pharisees, the scribes, the Jews, and eventually uh, to the Romans. And we have verse 46, finishing up this prayer in the garden. Verse 46, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus, I think we can take here, is he's not retreating or running away, but soon confronting his betrayers and adversaries face to face. I think there is something to be said here of Christ. In perfect obedience to the will of the Father, he knew what he had to do, and he faced the evil that confronted him face to face. His hour was at hand. Christ was a a man's man. He stood up, and he faced his betrayers, face-to-face, I've often wondered, I'm I'm sure every person in here has thought it, what it would feel like when you're facing imminent death. I I think that that's one of the hardest things for a human to grasp is what we would feel like knowing that you're going to die. Christ knew what he was going to face here momentarily. Not only his death, but the wrath of a holy God. His travail had, had to be excruciating, not even comprehensible to the human mind. And then verse 47 here, betrayal and arresting Gethsemane. As we finish up here, I won't read through it just for the sake of time. But verse 47, all four Gospels agree that Christ was still speaking when Judas arrived with his merry band of malcontents. Judas had a guard, and they arrived with swords and clubs. This was presumably the temple guard with officers from the chief priest. John, in chapter 18, tells us, who these individuals were now to the best of my ability in verse 48, I tried to come up with a timeline through all four of the gospels of the actual events over the next couple minutes and Jesus, uh, Jesus's arrests. When Judas confronts him, I tried to come up with an exact timeline to the best of my ability. So I'm going to give it my best shot here. So Jesus is getting done speaking with his disciples and Judas comes to Jesus. When he came to Jesus, Jesus steps forward and Judas walks up and kisses Christ. And we have to remember here, too, is it was it was at night. So Judas may have wanted to just confirm to the temple guard who they were arresting. So he confirms it with a kiss on the right cheek. And Then Christ then asked Judas after the kiss, Why then have you come to me? Whom are you seeking? And then Jesus said, and then said Jesus of Nazareth, I'm sorry, then they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. Flip over, I, I'm, I'm fascinated with this passage in John 18. It's almost uh, in John 8 too, at the end of John 8, when Christ says, before Abraham was, I am. I think that's just absolutely phenomenal. And Christ similarly says here in verse 5 and 6 of John 18, then he answered and said, or then he answered him, Jesus of Nazareth so Jesus says you're seeking me Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus said to them I am he where do we see this at we see this also when Moses was confronted at the burning bush the same language I am he Jesus responds by saying not just identifying himself as man but as the God man and what do we see here in verse 6 now when he said to them I am he they drew back And fell to the ground. Isn't that remarkable? They asked him who he was. He said I am God. And they drew back. And they fell to the ground. That's absolutely remarkable. You have to wonder what's going through the minds of these soldiers. And of Judas. It just again illustrates the hardness of their heart. When Jesus says this. They fall back to their face. But what they were going to do. Is because their hearts were hardened. They could not see and they could not hear. Absolutely remarkable. And then, uh, after Jesus said, "I am He," they fell back. They ask uh, Christ. Then ask again who they're seeking, and they say, "Jesus of Nazareth." Now, we have here in a couple of the Gospels recorded this kind of intra- or funny, funny uh, situation here. The disciples then ask if they should resist. So you see this band coming to Christ. And then you can imagine, we know at least Peter was carrying a sword. I'd imagine some of the other disciples were carrying a sword. It appears that they came to a decision as a group, and they asked Jesus, should we resist? Should we try to stop them? And what do we have is Peter doesn't wait for the answer. Peter, yet again, takes the situation into his own hands, and he strikes the high priest's servant in the ear. And this individual's name is recorded in Scripture for all of eternity. His name is Malchus. Peter struck Malchus in the ear. I'd have to say if Peter, he was a professional fisherman, but he most certainly was not a professional swordsman. If you're taking your sword, I don't think he was aiming for the ear. I think he was aiming right between the eyes. And what does he do? He cuts cuts the high priest's servant's ear off. And again, quite remarkably, Christ demonstrating his power and authority Heals him. Again, at least a couple of the guards, Judas had to have seen Peter strike the ear off and then Christ presumably pick it off the ground or take it off Peter's sword and put it back on. A complete healing. I mean, you would think to yourself, as soon as these soldiers saw this, they'd have to say, my goodness, at least this man's a prophet. He has to be from God or some sort. This is completely unjustifiable to arrest him. But it just just goes to show the complete hardness of their hearts they couldn't they were going to do what they were going to do and jesus responds in verse 52 to peter you know peter what are you doing this is ridiculous he says he said to him put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword and in verse 53 an amazing verse christ says or do you think that i can I, I cannot pray now to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels peter i don't need your sword to deliver me I can call upon 12 legions of angels. And some people think that this uh, number 12 was a legion for each of the disciples and then for Christ because there was 12 of them there. Or it could have just signified a a mass amount of individuals. A Roman legion usually consisted of about 6,000 men. So if my math is correct, that's about 72,000 angels. That is an absolutely innumerable amount of angels. And if you remember a couple times in the Old Testament... 72,000 angels. We see a couple of times in Sodom and Gomorrah what two angels did. And then we see when uh, Hezekiah was in Jerusalem and and Sennacherib, the Assyrian army, was besieging them, the angel of the Lord. One angel came down and struck, what was it, 140,000 Assyrians in one night? So just the, the unimaginable power that Christ says that he could call in a split second to deliver him. From the hands of these individuals. And Peter pulls the sword out. And finishing up here. How then should the. Uh, in 54 Christ says. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled. That this must happen. So Peter put your sword away. This was not meant to be. The scripture must be fulfilled. In verse 55 and 56. In the last minute. In the hour Jesus said to the multitudes. Have you come out as against a robber. With swords and clubs to take me. I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Christ had spent presumably his whole life with a lot of these individuals, and then three years of his ministry, teaching in the temple around Jerusalem, around Judea, and around Galilee. They knew who he was. They knew he wasn't a threat. But I think deep down, these people knew, these soldiers and Judas and these guards, They knew that there was more to Jesus than just a man. I think that's why they brought these clubs and these spears and these swords. Because they were afraid. But again, the hardness of their hearts, they could not see. Verse 56, Jesus is saying that this was done, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And uh, real quick, Luke 24, 44 to 46, Jesus says, uh, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So after the fact, they were given—the disciples and the followers of Christ were given eyes to see and ears to hear—the reason for this event. And then the end of verse 56. Again, a fulfillment of the prophecy of Christ. Just a couple of verses prior, then all the disciples forsook Him and fled. We'll end there. If you have any comments or questions, see me afterwards.